welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is part three of our conversation with Dr. Sarah Mimi. Sarah is a behavioral scientist and a lifelong horse person. She teaches at the University of Louisville in Kentucky, where she's been an assistant professor of marketing in the College of Business. Her main area of research is how people pursue goals, how they handle conflicts between multiple goals, and how they manage their personal resources, such as time and money. Sarah also teaches in the University of Louisville's unique equine business program. So there's lots, lots to talk about. And this is indeed, this is our second long conversation that we've had with Sarah. The first was published back in August and September of 2021. And now we're continuing the conversation in this three-part series. In this second round, we're focusing more on Sarah's research. So in part one, we talked about control and choices and which brought us to structures and boundaries. And and that was some really fascinating things that related to horses. And then in part two, we talked about the two paradoxes, the paradox of choice and the paradox of control. And this led us to consider how ideas are spread through a community, which brought us to marketing. And since Sarah teaches marketing at the University of Louisville, of course we needed to head in that direction. So that's what we're going to do in part three of our conversation. And if you're someone like me, who as soon as the word marketing appears, you think, oh, I wanna be, I, I, I'm, I'm not interested, that's not, that's not for me. Well, stay with us, because I think you're going to find that we're looking at marketing through a very different lens than is normally presented. So here we go, into marketing. So marketing, we were going there slowly. Or or was there anything you wanted to say about control and boundaries that we haven't touched yet, or...? Should we jump into the marketing and the similarities? Yeah, with training? I think we can go in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So what we were just talking about, of course, gets into that, um, thinking about essentially marketing clicker training. But as I did at the beginning, talking about control, I always, again, like to start talking about definitions. And so what is marketing? Uh, I teach this subject and something I always do. So I'll be a professor here and I'll, I'll pick on you both and I'll just ask you for your perception and it's not wrong because it's just your perception of what what is marketing I mean what do you think of what do you think of it being so Dominique your background is in marketing what would you say oh my god you know it's uh, well for me marketing is just putting a product on the market selling it um but there's you know sharing the values of a of a brand um so that people can relate to it. Um, yeah, those are all all right. <laughs> There's nothing <laughs> wrong in that. Yeah. yeah. What's your perception, Alex? Well, you gave a lovely definition last time that I that were my ears. Oh, I did. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I gave really the spoiler. Loved that. Yeah, I wrote it down. But 
Uh, what was it? The exact language of it, I'd rather have you give, but I love that as a definition of marketing. Okay. Yes, I'll give that one then. Okay. Uh, so it is uh, the exchange of value between a company and a customer. Um, and this is, again, not my you know, invention. This is um, you know, pretty standard. And I think that I love that as a place to start in thinking about it, because I think to, to what you were saying, Dominique, and what I experienced with students, and even in my own background, doing marketing communications professionally, we tend to think about, well, there's like selling and promotion, and we kind of think about those things and brands, and those are absolutely all part of it. So it's not that those are incorrect or wrong in any way, but what it really is fundamentally is much broader than that. Um, so it is a value exchange relationship. And that's nice for clicker trainers because I think that maps beautifully onto the idea of training as a value exchange relationship. Uh, so in marketing, what does that look like? Well, as a company or a service provider, you are delivering value to your customer, and that would be your product or your service. That's how you deliver value, whatever it is that you're actually offering in the marketplace. And then you receive value, or to use a less positive word, you extract value. Let's say receive value. Um, usually that would be money, somebody paying for something, but it's or not time. always or money. Time. You can pay, exactly, you can mm -hmm. pay for things with your time and your attention. Um, but it's usually some type of resource that your customers is give, you know, is offering in exchange for the value. So it, it's, it's a value exchange relationship. And what is also nice about that is that that idea is, it's very agnostic as to the, the quality of that relationship. So again, I think a, a common perception is, well, marketing is manipulative and it's exists to, you know, use people and get people to get things they don't really want or need. And, and really to me, that just describes a bad relationship. But some, it's, sometimes it's, and true. some relationships yeah. are bad. Yeah. yeah. Yes. But in a good relationship, both as individual people interacting with each other and in a marketing relationship, if it's a good relationship, really even how do we define a good relationship as individuals? Really, it's about a good balance in mm -hmm. the exchange of reinforcers, right? If you think about your own life and people that you know, and you would say, you would say, I have a good relationship with that person. Probably what that means fundamentally is that you have reinforced them in various ways and they have reinforced you and you feel like there is a reasonable balance in that. A bad relationship, often that is uh, you know, somebody where you're, you're doing a lot for them, you're offering a lot, you're doing things and then they, you get nothing in return, or you get only, you know, negative things in return. You know, that's kind of the definition of a bad relationship. And so that idea of marketing as an exchange of value, a value exchange relationship, it could be a good relationship where it's mutually beneficial for both parties involved. And ideally that's what it could be, but you know, there, there's nothing that says it has to be a good one, but generally the most successful ones are mutually beneficial. You're delivering something that people genuinely value and they're genuinely willing to, to provide something of value in exchange for it. And in training, that's hopefully also what we're doing with the animals. Yes, yes, exactly. And through that exchange, you build relationships. Yep, yep. it's the exchange that builds the relationship. Another parallel that I see is that 
You know, sometimes in marketing, what you'll see is when maybe the, the fit between the values of the company and the values yeah. of the customers is not quite there so that the mm -hmm. sales are not at, you know, whatever the company's expecting, they'll just shout louder, bigger ads, more ads. Yeah. And that's true in training too. You know, sometimes people get louder yeah. when they don't get the results they want. Yeah. They get louder and louder. And so a company getting louder and louder through their marketing, you know, the various tools they have. And that can sometimes be counterproductive in marketing. You know, people get tired mm -hmm. of hearing about this company that, you know, advertises, they, they get like saturated. And so in our animals, we know how they react when we get louder and louder. It's not, well, you know, you, mm -hmm. you, may, you may get... There, there are short-term goals and long-term goals in training, such as in marketing, too. Yep. You, know, you can get a quick, yep. dirty sale, but long-term, mm -hmm. you may not be a brand that people will love. And it's true, true with our horses. You know, If you scream yeah. loud enough, you'll get an instant result, but long-term, there are some side effects. So it's interesting that part yeah. the more I start thinking about it, the more I see things that are similar. Yeah. And you, you saying that, I love that you said that because um, in, the, in the, the framework of marketing, so there's a framework that, that I teach and that's very commonly used uh, as a way to think structure in a structured <laughs> manner around, you know, complicated problems. How do you approach them? You, you have a, a structured manner that you, that you can use to think about them. And, you know, again, so often, just popularly what we experience as consumers is the sort of advertising and promotion part. And so, but those are really the tactics, like that's the end of the process. Mm -hmm. So what do you advertise where, how, you know, those are obviously relevant, but that's tactics. Further up the chain is, are your strategic decisions? And those are really about, so segmentation, targeting and positioning. So that those decisions are really about who are you trying to serve it's really customer focused. Who are you trying to serve? Who are they and what do they value? Like that's where you start. Mm -hmm. Who do you want to serve and what do they value? And then how do you meet that value? You know, how do you meet their goals? How do you deliver value to them? Mm -hmm. And then after that, if you know what you're doing there, then you go, how do we advertise? How do we? And I think what you're talking about, Dominique, is like when there's this mismatch where you're not actually either delivering value or you're talking to the wrong people who don't value what you have to or, offer. Or you're, and not then in, willing, yeah. or you're not willing to pick a segment. You don't want to pick yeah, a segment. that too. You don't yeah. want to pick. You want to talk to everybody because you want everybody to buy your product. And so, you know, and, and it may end up that everybody is buying your product, but in the beginning, if you're going to do a good marketing campaign, you did pick a segment. Yeah. You picked some values, you picked if, something. If we, if we make another parallel to training and we start looking at the uh, constructional training in Gold Diamond's work, and he has those the four key questions, beginning with where do you want to go? What's the dream that you're after? And where are you now? You think, okay, where do you want to go? It's, well, who is your customer? It's a very parallel thing. Yeah. And then what is your starting point? Mm -hmm. How are you going to get there? 
what are the what are your training steps and then uh what's going to keep you motivated and and so it feels very yeah. parallel to what you were just describing because mm -hmm. i could easily i think we could easily look at the gold diamond four questions and look at what you were just phrasing of who are they what do they value and how do you how do you meet them how do you meet their their values those those absolutely uh, line up with the gold diamond four questions. Really interesting. It's constructional. Yeah. Yeah. Very fun. Yeah. Constructional, constructional well, you know, relationships are relationships. Constructional marketing. Yeah. But there's, yeah. you know, so there's the, yeah. the constructional training where you look at what is it that you want and how do I build those, how do I build those, those outcomes? How do I build those, those behaviors? And then there's the pathological model of well, what's broken what do i want to fix what do i want to stop what do i want to suppress and i think in marketing mm -hmm. we get both you know that oh if you just buy this yep. project it will it will get rid of all these horrible things that you don't like i think it can be pretty pretty uh, efficient though in advertising when you do that kind of campaign sometimes you know like if you have a cockroach in your house yes i think this kind of campaign will work with me get rid of the cockroach yeah. <laughs> there's a there is a place and a role for the like if if you have a horse who's got an injury an illness you know we we want to go look at the medical model of how do i get how do i get the fever down yep right right but then you could have another campaign about how to not have cockroaches in your house in the first place. Yes. So I, you know, yeah. I think it, it could be an interesting thing of looking at marketing and and is it are the marketing campaigns that just make me go, ooh, let me get away from this as fast as I can. I don't want. I don't like marketing. I don't like marketing. Is that because what I'm encountering is at their core, they're pathological. And the, the marketing campaigns that have appealed to me, is it because they're more constructional? I haven't thought about that. It could be. I would see two aspects to that because you have one aspect of what you're talking about is what's the message and are you building the value you're delivering around removing an unwanted outcome, getting the cockroach out of your house or avoiding your horse colicking? Or are you offering you know a positive outcome to approach like having a wonderful yes how do i structure my environment so yes healthy horse or fill in the blank um and so there's that piece of it and there's an interesting you know so there's that and then there's the piece though about how a company is approaching the relationship and i think a little bit you're touching on both of those and so i think the the stuff that makes our you know makes us just like tighten up our neck yeah. and our you know yeah. cringe often is not so much about the message that's being delivered specifically, but about a marketing relationship that's approached from just how do I extract the most possible value yeah. out of this? How do I just extract value, usually money, but just extract, extract, extract. And it's not about delivering value and exchanging value in a long-term relationship. And a training relationship could be that way. You know, I'm going to get this animal in and in three months, get as much as I possibly can out of it and turn it around and sell it and on to the next. Yep. That's an extractive sort of a mindset versus how do I use the training to, you know, give this horse skills and of course meet my needs, but also in, 
make it healthier and increase its well-being and we're going to have a balance and I'm going to be invested in the long term. And who nobody minds working with a company that does that as well. Like if you think about, and we all have relationships in our you know, marketplace relationships that are like that. And when those disappear, you're sad, yes. you miss it. <laughs> you wish they would come back and, you know, sell the thing you love so much or the, the teacher who used to, you know, teach and, you know, that you enjoyed working with or whatever it is. So there is that balance of having that, a focus on a delivering value and having a mutually beneficial relationship or just short-term extraction, like strip mining version, flash and burn. Sort of an aside, but I'm reading um, Jared Diamond's uh, The World Until Yesterday. He wrote uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Oh, okay. And uh, fascinating. A lot of what he's looking at is human cultures before uh, modern first contact and how were they structured. And when he's looking at some of the cultures in, say, New Guinea, and the this was there was not a cash uh, society. And so the exchange of goods that solidified relationships and that kept you safe from your neighbor and, uh, and so on. It's just fascinating the how and why all of that evolved. Mm-hmm. One group that he was looking at, they were exchanging pots for something else that they could, that they could provide. And, and the people in that particular community were saying, oh, well, we, we, we can't make pots. We don't, we don't remember, we used to, but we don't remember how to make pottery. And so we, we have to get our pots from this, this other group. And then the other group, something happened to them and they no longer were able to supply pottery. And instantly the uh, community that was buying the pots, they're making pots. They had not lost the ability to make pottery, but even though they could, they were having this exchange because the exchange was of value to them in terms of the relationship building. Yep. And I think when you when you start looking at this from that perspective of what evolved when you're looking at cultures that uh, are not cash societies, it's really quite interesting mm-hmm. in terms of the marketing and in terms of the parallels with training because it is an exchange of value. It's truly an exchange of value. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, there are, because there, you, you don't buy things or adhere to things. Is that a word in English? Adhere? Yes. Like adhere. Adhere? Yeah. Adhere for the same reasons, you know, like for me, training animals is something where I want depth and I'm willing to put years and years and years of my time into learning this. I... For other things, I want the smallest learning curve yes. possible because right. I don't have time. Right. I don't want to spend time. I just want like quick and dirty, very um, I, yep. low I, involvement, low yeah, involvement, I, I you know, good result. <laughs> exactly. In right. other cases, I just want the efficiency. I want to get something in 24 hours. I don't care if it's $20 more. I want it tomorrow. You know, so there are different reasons for different things. And I can understand that with the training, you know, for some people, they're 
like me with other things than training where they want, they don't want the big learning curve. For me, the big learning curve is like the most delicious yeah. thing because I keep yeah. getting in deeper and deeper and I just get better at it. And that's what I love about it. There's no end to it. But for someone yeah. else, it may be like, oh my God, you know, this is so- They just want to get on the horse and go for a trail ride. Yeah, I yeah. just want yeah. my dog yeah. to sit quietly when I'm reading yeah. this book, you know? So yeah. The, the values are are changing in different areas. And I'm the same person, you know, I like to study, but not yeah. in this particular area. I just want to get the, yeah. the result really you know, You're quick. shopping for a new car. Yep. So you, you go to consumer reports. You don't need to get under the hood and really understand how cars work. You just want That's somebody right. who is car crazy to have gone through the testing to say, all right, out of all the models, these are these are our top picks for these different categories. Yeah. Out of all the training methods that are out there, you know, if you want something that's quick and dirty that'll just get, but you, you know, where you don't care how you get to the outcome, you just want to be able to get on the horse and trail ride. Well, you know, here's here's what will make you happy. You know, I want to change the layout of my kitchen, and I wanted to uh, to use an app. So my top criteria was ease yes. of use. I don't yeah. want to have to spend three weeks to understand how this app works. I have to be able to lay out the room today. And I did. I yeah. found something that was exactly like that. And it's not exactly the right colors. And I don't care because it was just the layout. I wanted to see if it would work. Yep. And it was super good because I was able to use it very quickly. So then for the clicker training, yeah. we need, so we, in a sense, we need to create different, I want to say teaching structures or programs. So we might have the program mm -hmm. that gives you the, uh, you know, I just, I just want a quick and dirty that, that gets you in fast, that gives you some success, doesn't get too complicated. You don't have to know anything about uh, behavioral analysis but you can be safe, you can be successful. Mm -hmm. And then there's the training program that's full of the nuance and the detail and the, ooh, let's go down this rabbit hole and that rabbit hole and, and have a lot of fun. Yeah. Let's yeah. geek out. <laughs> so, so yeah, to use the, that language, you know, the, the language of marketing, you're talking about you know, market segmentation and you have different, and all segmentation is, is just grouping together people who have similar wants and needs. And so who I like to be as a trader is pretty similar to you. You know, I like this. I like the depth and the, the rabbit hole. But to your point, like if I'm using other tools, I just don't care. I'm, I'm a sort of more surface level consumer. And so, but what appeals to you or to me isn't going to appeal to someone in a different segment. And, you know, if we imagine that like clicker training is you know, a company, which it isn't, of course, but if we just imagine it that way, you could say as a company, well, I want to serve this segment and not that segment strategically. Like these are not the people I don't really offer value to these people over here. They're not going to value what I have to offer. So I'm not going to serve them. That's valid and often very important to do. Or you can say, well, I'm going to differentiate and have some, I'm going to meet multiple segments by having some different value offerings. 
And so this is why at a very basic level, like you go into a tack shop and how many different shampoos, equine horse shampoos, like every barn you've ever been into, right? You go to the wash rack. How many shampoos are on that wash rack? You know, if it's a barn with more than one person in it, 10, 20, sometimes just dizzying arrays. And we don't really maybe need that. But the idea is the reason that exists in the market is it's just, you know, different. Okay, we're going to have a shampoo for this color horse and this color horse and this, you know, this one's the antifungal and this one is the conditioner and this one is the the whitening one. And, you know, they're all these different needs right and then so they're 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 segmented or to different different wants and needs and and or perceived exactly they could be real or perceived yes they've convinced you right they have convinced you that you know that it, it's like that what was yes. it um with the oh the one of the dishwashing detergents they uh they doubled their their sales by adding the instructions rinse and repeat so now you were using twice as so you're what? now using twice yeah, as I have much to use twice as much of it. So one look it's like you could you could easily do your wash just with one cycle. So you you know you put your half cup yeah. in of detergent and your your laundry is clean. But they added rinse and repeat. So now it takes a cup of detergent because you're doing two cycles. And they doubled their sales. So there's that perceived yeah. oh yeah. you so need all these the perceived yes, difference all these different but you're right you yeah know, you you go to the t- how many but, bits do how many bits really do we need <laughs> on that wall of, yeah. of um i won't use an adjective but on that wall that immense wall of bits that you see when you go into a yeah. tax store and you think and talk about how does anybody ever make the choice Assuming that, assuming Choices, that they decided right. to, to use a bit, which is a choice, but if they have decided to use a bit and now they're going in and there's like, oh my heavens, you know, how many bits right. do we really need in this world? Apparently a lot. <laughs> yeah. But yes, apparently a lot. And, you know, a company that makes bits, they can basically serve more customers by making more different yes. types of bits. And so... The clicker training thing could be to say, well, there might be some some segments out there that aren't going to really be interested in this, and this isn't going to be a value to them. And well, you you might say, eh, you know, not all not all customers are a good fit. Right. You let that go, but you then might say, well, in the swath of people who would find this useful and appealing at some level, you've got variety. This is a you know, not, this is a heterogeneous group of people and you have the Dominiques and the Sarahs and the, those at one end. And then you have others who just want to get on and go, as you said, Alex. And so then, then it's kind of a question to then to say, okay, how do you build a, so there's an idea here of, of the value funnel. And so I talked, you know, you can have like a purchase funnel and a value funnel. And the idea is that if, if you think about just that shape of a funnel at the top, you've got a lot of people and you offer some value that is, you know, let's say low involvement. So this might be like you offer something that you know, free videos online, you know, a little bit of something, something a little more, let's say, superficial and accessible and usually less expensive. And then as you kind of move down that funnel, so the, the top end would be, again, free video online or some really simple 
point of entry and that gets people into the funnel. And then as you go down, you get more and more value that you're offering, but you're also getting a narrow and narrower group of people. And at that very tip, and let's say a tr con more of a normal conventional training setup, those might be the clients that are, you know, full-time training board, going to competitions, you know, buying and selling, like those sorts of clients. But at the top, you might have people just looking at your YouTube videos. And then you might have people who just go to a clinic once a year. And then you might have people who trailer in for regular lessons. And then you might have people who, you know, so you have these differentiated offerings and they meet the needs of different people. And it might be because they have different types of interests or different values or different amounts of time and money to invest. And so you have to sort of think about structuring. How do you structure what you're offering to, to meet those different needs. And if all you're offering is the very tip of that, of that funnel, the very bottom, you're really not going, it's, it's going to be unsustainable because you won't have, right. it, the barrier to entry is so high that people will just, will never get there. And you won't, and you need to have, you know, some people, you need this broader base essentially of people who are, are not as deeply involved. And, and I think that's okay. You know, I think maybe earlier on when I was encountering clicker training, I was a little more like, well, if you're going to do it, you got to do it this way. And, you know, all, you know, I was maybe a little more rigid in my feeling about it, but now I feel like actually, I feel like there's something to be said for, for providing more accessible points of entry. But at the same time, you have to define yourself, though, I think. And yeah. for me, strong brands, they do leave yeah. some people out. Because Absolutely. if you want to be, be the coolest brand on the street, you cannot appeal to conservative mm -hmm. people. You have to decide that conservative yeah. people will not like you. They will stay away from you because you're trying to be the yeah. cool one. And it's like uh, anti antagonistic. You so you have to yeah. decide who you are. I think it's better to have a smaller pool, and really have a strong brand that people know who you are, what you stand for, than try right. and be everything to everybody. Because then you're nothing. People don't know who you are, what you are, what yeah. you're what you stand for. And I think strong brands are like that. You know, you know what they're about. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Even with a strong brand, don't you still need a funnel? Because you've got to get, you've got to yeah. get them to you in some way. Yes. Yeah. If you think about like a fashion house, you know, they have couture at the very, very tip, right? The 10 people in the world buy and then they have you know run ratios and then they have you know moving up from that like you know and even these very exclusive fashion brands they have perfumes and they have you know handbags and they have they have lots of things up that value chain that might still actually be quite exclusive but are available to a wider group than than the ones who are the most most invested at the very very tip you know buying couture off the runway in paris not that that's what we're doing in clicker training but i think it's you know it's just we're familiar with the idea that there might be this very exclusive fashion brand and you can still buy a scarf you don't have to go buy uh you can buy a, you know a scarf from Hermé or something and you don't have to go buy couture off the runway And, and so you're, you know, it still can be exclusive and, and well-defined or I don't want to say exclusive, but 
clear, right? Have a clear vision and a clear positioning, but yet still you do have some differentiation within the people who, who value that and who want that. For, for clicker training anyway, what's made a difference too, even though the, you know, the percentage, like you said before, it's not mainstream right. yet, but because of the internet, the playground is now the whole planet. I mean, we have yeah. people yeah. from Australia listening to this podcast, you know, so we may not talk to the mainstream, but there are people like us yeah. all over this planet. And so in the end, that becomes a pretty big group. You know, when we gather at Clicker Expo and we have people from everywhere, yeah. you know, it's not just Canada or Montreal or whatever, you know, it's like geographically it has expanded a lot. We have created our own stream. So, which I think is a, yep. a really good way of looking at it. So we don't have to drive ourselves crazy about, you know, are we in the mainstream or, you know, we've created our own stream. And as our stream mm -hmm. gets bigger, it's constructional again. As that stream, the stream is, mm -hmm. the stream started out as a trickle. I mean, it was, I know it was a trickle. I was going out <laughs> my, uh, you know, targeting and, and treats. It was, a tr it was a drop. It wasn't even a trickle. And, you know, and then it became, you think of it like a, you know, that tributary and the tiny little stream that, that joins mm -hmm. up with other people who are experimenting with it and trying it. And we joined together, we joined together on the internet. We joined together through things like this podcast or through clinics or mm -hmm. clicker expo and that stream becomes wider and wider until it's a river and and you know it is we are creating our own stream which i think is a lovely image actually mm -hmm. and a really powerful image and mm -hmm. there will be some people many people who are not interested in swimming in our stream yeah and it's fine we don't have to drive ourselves crazy or push against them or say you're wrong or whatever we just have to say that's fine but we're having a lot of fun in our stream you know you can do all kinds of yeah. really come on in the water's fine yeah and there are all kinds of cool things that you can do when you come play in this stream it's really neat it's really fun and and come on in because the water is really glorious but what I what I want to make yeah. sure is that when people first dip their toe into the stream, that they have a good experience, yep. that they don't find that they're in over yep. their head, or they've gotten into a current that's too fast, where they're they, or they feel like they're drowning, which are all metaphors for things that can happen when you dip your toe into this stream. Like if you are a novice handler who's gone to a horse rescue and gotten a horse who's had a really rough history and now you've brought this horse home and when you remove the threat of punishment, you now have a horse that is displaying all kinds of dangerous behavior and you do not have, you have limited handling skills. You can be feel very mismatched between the horse that you have and your own skills. And so how do we get you into the stream safely? How do we create the kiddie pools, yeah. basically? You know, the, the, the quiet, the quiet mm -hmm. little side stream where the current is not very strong and the water's not very deep. Yeah. That's the metaphor. Yes. 
And as the parent of a young child who's learning to swim, you know, the different stages of like all these yeah. floaties yeah. that you have that you put the kids in and there's like the best version. And then there's the one that just goes on their back and then, you know, and then they're swimming independently eventually. And yes, how do you, how do you gradiate yeah, that? And once they start to swim independently, they want to swim in the wider stream. So that's Dominique when you, when you suddenly reach that point where you're excited by the rabbit holes. You know, you want to go and say, mm. oh, you've got, yeah. you've got a canoe. That looks like fun. Can I play in the canoe? You know? Mm. Yeah. yeah. But if you, if you don't know how to dip your toe in the water, yeah, it might look like fun, but the first time you try a canoe and you're spinning around in a little circle and going nowhere and feeling totally out of control, you may say, oh, I don't like that. So we have to get you there yeah. in small degrees. Yeah. And that's, that's the, Right. That's the challenge of that's that's in, gets us into the field of instructional design, of how do we build a program mm -hmm. that gets you that gets you into the water safely, that gets you started, that gives you early success, that gives you success with your horse, that your desired outcome, you know, you are beginning to achieve, mm -hmm. and you stay safe. That's the tricky part, and you stay safe. Yeah. Yeah, because you're not, this isn't just about, you know, buying no. a product or even buying a service. It's about acquiring yeah. a skill. Yeah. Mm. And so it's, it's much more complicated. You know, it's not yeah. a pair of sneakers. I've always felt, it's a skill. especially when I was first beginning to develop the you know, books and the DVDs and all the resources, I always felt like I was in a yeah. place. You know, that, I, that how fast can I get this material out there so that people, because that. You, you can train faster than you can write a book, you know? And so uh, somebody who was learning with me, they would be ready for the next step before I had produced the DVD. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm right, racing I, to stay, uh, to get you the resources yeah. that you need and to get them to you before life happens. And there's, mm. and, and you or the horse get hurt because the skill set wasn't there for dealing with the situation that you suddenly found yourself in. So it's, it, it has yeah. that complication. And it, it yeah. And, and I think another, this is, I mean, I'm just thinking of this now as you're talking about it, but this is also not just be, above and beyond the clicker training itself, this way of learning and disseminating information and skill and horsemanship is also itself an innovation and is very new. So if you think about this problem has always existed as long as there have been people and horses, right? How do you take novice people and put them together with horses and how do you gain skill and horsemanship? That's not a new problem. And I, I think it's fair to say you, you, can, you might have other perspectives on it, but that historically, conventionally, the way that problem is addressed is you know, through apprenticeship, through direct experience, through you go to a barn, there is somebody there in ideally anyway, with an experienced, skilled trainer, with experienced horses, and you apprentice and you work with them directly. And um, that's basically how horsemanship has been transferred. Pre-combustible engines, pre, you know, pre-steam engines and so on. Right. You grew up with horses. You yeah. just grew and up so with you it. You grew up yep. watching, learning, experiencing. For many people, there would not have been a time when horses were not in their environment. And so what has changed yep. radically is you now have people who were, who 
horse crazy as children did not have the opportunity to be around horses or maybe you know you rode when you were a kid but that was 20 30 years ago and and now you've got your own horse but you do not you you don't have a lifetime of being around horses you haven't sat on truly well-trained horses you don't have access to the opportunity to sit on horses to have the instructor who's got a horse that that uh, you can sit on while they lunge the horse so that you can learn how to sit walk trot canter you know all of those experiences how do we yeah. teach that you know and, and what are the experiences that you really need in order to get up to speed in an activity in which mistakes can get you really badly hurt and where yeah. we want to keep the safety net underneath the horse so you know every time a horse steps on a person's foot knocks them into them bites at them you know whatever it is it's like somebody's taken a pair of scissors and snipped a strand of the safety net that's underneath that horse you snip enough strands mm -hmm. and that horse is on a trailer going somewhere else and you know most mm -hmm. of us have read black beauty and we know what can happen to horses who end up on trailers because people didn't like how they were behaving mm -hmm. so we've got a long way from marketing <laughs> well yeah although i still again think about it as like if you're thinking about you know, if you were, you know, designing that experience, you know, designing that product, that service of how do you, like, it's the same basic question, you know, who are those people? What do they value? What do they need? And then how do you design something that, that meets that need? You know, what's their need? How do you fill it? In a way, it's like when we ask ourselves, what is reinforcing to my animal? You know, we say mm -hmm. that, right? This may yeah. be reinforcing to this animal, yeah. but not to that animal. I guess marketing is a little bit like that too, you know? Yeah, yeah, it is. And I think these are really interesting questions for not only clicker training, but for just access to horses in general. That, what you described, people coming to horses with very different types of backgrounds and profiles than they had in the past, that's, I mean, that's just yeah. access to yeah. horses, period. And, you know, loss of open land and increasing costs of, it's, I think about this, I would love to see, I mean, from an innovation perspective, I would love to see not only more ways for people to come into finding this type of work in clicker training, but even just more models for involvement with and access to horses more generally, because our conventional models are lacking. They're really, there's, there's like own a horse, you know, buy a horse, own a horse with all that that entails or maybe take some lessons. There's there's so few ways, there's so few models. I think that's one of the great yeah. opportunities for clicker training because one of the things that clicker training yeah. opens up is there's all this really fun, cool stuff that you can do with, with horses on, on, that don't involve no. directly riding. And so think of, uh, there's a horse rescue near me and she regularly has children come in to read to the horses. They read stories to the horses. And you know that's a delightful and charming activity. 
and you think of all the ways in which we could be interacting with horses and getting and, and creating opportunities for people who maybe you know maybe someday they will ride but they're not currently riders and when we think about being able to send horses around um, say the agility style course that kind of activity mm -hmm. or hanging out and reading a horse a story or doing match to sample kinds of things you've got a, a small child who's learning colors well let's go do colors with our horses and they're just the possibilities that exist when you say all right if we weren't riding if we were going to take riding out of it for whatever reason maybe we've got a population of horses because it's a horse rescue that are really not rideable for one reason or another mm -hmm. but we'd like to create opportunities for people to interact with horses because that's such a great way for people to, I mean, you don't value what you don't know. No. They'd say that about valuing um, natural spaces. If people don't get out and walk under trees, right. they're not going to, they're not going to value and want to preserve open spaces. And to let people feel invested in it. So I, I read, I don't remember where I saw this, but I believe it was uh, the the horses off on the coast of Virginia, the Chincoteague ponies. I believe that there's some program where you can basically make a donation and then you, you know, quote unquote, own or partially own one of the wild ponies. I think this is where it was. And some people will do that and they'll just go, you know, they, they bring them across on the roundup. They swim them across once a year and they're the ones that are returned. They, they stay in the, the wild herd, but the people who, you know, quote unquote, own them will come just to see them and feel that and they love it. And it's my pony. Yes, exactly. And I thought like, well, there's just, I, I think there's a lot of, there's just so many possibilities for what you could do and providing access to horses that, um, you know, what do you, can you imagine giving your the little girl and you get a briar for Christmas or for whatever holiday? And it's not only that, but, you know, it was actually an expensive one, you know, it was a couple hundred dollars, but part of that means you have this like, you know, ownership in a horse who's, you know, permanently stabled at a retirement yeah. facility and that you can then go and visit that horse and you have the briar model of your yeah. horse. Yeah. And would that be something that how many little girls might value or yes. little boys? Yes. <laughs> how many children would value that? The, the briar actually itself is an interesting case study. They, there's, <clears throat> I'm not sure if you've ever come across this, but there's this whole phenomenon of model horse showing. I've heard about that. Yes. So people show their briars. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. I went down a rabbit hole reading about it once because I just was so interested in it. And people take theirs and the world convention for briars is held nearby, near where I live here. It's in Lexington every year. And it's a an event that draws like, thousands and thousands. I mean, it's a huge event, it's like 30,000 people or something go to this. It's huge. And they have, you can show your briars and performance classes and in confirmation classes. And in, I don't ask me how it's judged, but in people build these beautiful, intricate dioramas around their horses and their, you know, their model horses and they show them and even adults do this. And Briar didn't actually really engineer this. They facilitated it, but 
people started doing it yeah. on their own, just like enthusiasts of these model horses started doing it. And they saw that happening and they said, oh, that's just kind of interesting. And so that the company now encourages it and, you know, is, is part of it. But when you talk to people who do it, they, they basically said that, you know, how does it start? Like, how does an adult get into <laughs> doing this? It seems very odd. And for a lot of them, they said, you know, basically that, that those model horses to them become almost real. Like they, they sort of take on the properties of real horses and they first got into it often as young people because they desperately loved horses, were interested in horses, wanted to be around horses. They were physically or financially inaccessible. And this was the only way they could access it. And I see that and I think, oh my gosh, like if there's so much desire, people value connection with horses to that degree, then how many more... It just, it feels like there's so much opportunity yeah. around that to, to bring people in, into, and, you know, clicker training can be a way to do that as well. And, and it relates to what we talked about previously, which is, you know, my own experience with staying involved in horses, not owning a horse and trying to kind of figure out how to do that. And what does that look like? And how do you stay connected to riding and horses when you're not in the conventional right. ownership model. And I have discovered there are, there are more ways to do it than I used to think were, were available. And so I don't know, maybe somebody out there listening to this, even in, in Europe, I, mean, I don't know in Dominique, if in Canada is this way, but there are more models there for, for how to be involved in horses, like the riding club model. So Rebecca Schulze, yeah. who, you know, of course, who's been on the podcast before she is from Germany originally. And she was talking to me about how she got started in horses and in riding and in the riding club model, you can just start out, you know, you don't have to own a horse necessarily. You pay just a monthly fee and then you are there with other children and you're involved. And then you kind of ladder up if you stay interested into having a deeper level of involvement, but it's quite easy and relatively affordable and accessible to, to get started and get involved. Um, and we don't have much of that no, we don't. here. We don't, there, there are certainly are riding the, the stable where I boarded my horses for years, she leased the lesson ponies. So if you were taking lessons from her, you yeah. could lease one of the lesson ponies, which gave you certain access to the horse outside of yeah. the lesson. So that was one way. But I'm just thinking in terms of like Panda, minis, miniature horses her yeah. size. When yeah. I was training her, I, I did a lot of training sitting in a chair because she's little. Uh, and, and so it made yeah. sense to sit down to, to teach her various and sundry things. And I would think, oh, if somebody were, were in a wheelchair, how empowering it mm -hmm. would be to have the kind of interaction with a horse that a horse with some of the training I mean, they, they don't have to have the depth of training that uh, Panda as a guide horse has, but some of just core basic training, how empowering that would be to have that relationship with a horse of any size, where even though you're confined to a chair, you are still in this training relationship with a horse. And because yep. the groundwork is opened up to such a huge degree, it makes that possible. 
no, it's not. Mm. Well, I, you know, I can't really get involved with horses because, you know, uh, I have this disability or that disability or whatever it is. Yes, you can. You can have an amazing relationship yeah. with a horse. And and the clicker training groundwork opens it up to so many. I think about when I had my own horse who, you know, he had this big repertoire of behaviors. And when I would just have, you know, friends or family come visit, they would often want to come and, you know, meet my horse and we'd go to the barn. And because he had all of those behaviors, it wasn't just, well, here's this horse and I'm going to get on and ride and you won't even know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And he's a big dangerous animal and you have to stay 20 feet away. And that's all you can do unless you, you know, like spend tens of thousands of hours learning how to ride. This is all you have available. He, he had all these behaviors and I would say, oh, come over here and here's how, you know, hold the food and here's how you hold the clicker or how you can click and, you know, do this and oh, he'll yawn. And, and I mean, people just loved it. He, it was almost like a little, you know, they would just do some simple behaviors or I'd say, oh, can I throw this and he can fetch yeah. it for you? Or I don't know what else he would do. And, and even actually in hand things I could hand him because when they're trained to offer behaviors, right? All you really need to do, if you have, a, if the horse is like, let's say a school, a clicker schoolmaster, so to speak, all the handler really needs to do is get in the right ballpark That's right. of asking for something, and the horse meets them halfway or more than halfway. And so I could hand him to somebody who's pretty novice and just say, okay, stand like this and walk like this and hold your hands like this, and he would yeah. offer an in-hand yeah. shoulder in, and they would get to experience that. And even if someone is really, really novice and even afraid yeah. of horses, yeah. uh, you know, the, the round pen in the middle of the arena where yeah. the person is inside the round pen and the horse is yeah. loose in the arena. Yeah. So it's protected contact for the person who is novice but they can still yeah. feel they really are interacting with the animal because the animal will come and to the round pen and the person is protected inside and they can do all kinds of targeting through the round pen rails, targeting, you know, going back and forth and turning around. And if they're too novice to know when to click, you can be there and click instead of the person. You can even hand out the food if they're not to that level, but there's a lot that can be done protecting novice people, but still allowing them to interact with the animal. Even, you know, I've had some experiences doing this with um, autistic um, organization, you know, because Mm -hmm. very often you you hear that people, they get um, some kind of healing from their relationship Mm -hmm. with the animal. I'm always worried that the animal is having a good time you know, because it's great for the human if they're being healed, but if the animal is being stressed, I don't, you know, for me, it's not a win-win relationship. But when you have this kind of setup, um, you know, the animal can go away if it becomes too stressful. Um, and the uh, the person in the middle is always protected. So it's, I find it's a win-win. So one, of, yeah. one of the other things that makes it a win-win, and one of the things that I really, really like about uh, some of this work that when you start involving the clicker training is what you hear from people is that horse is so smart. And so smart. they change yeah. how they are perceiving the horse. And, and mm. that is really important. 
So when you start to see the mm -hmm. intelligence of the non-human species, I think that hmm. shifts our perception of the non-human world. And you know, because so often we think of you know the horse is a stupid animal or whatever it is, and even if you don't have that verbalized, there's still a piece of that that sits in our cultural training. And so when you see that shift of, wow, that is so cool, that horse is that horse knows his colors. He's so smart. It changes our perception, and that's a good thing. That's more marketing, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. How do we shift how people are seeing horses? And as we shift the belief system around horses, that shifts more towards caring about their, their welfare. Because, you know, there is that in the one model the one view of, of of training you know that horses are stupid animals and because they are stupid animals you need to use force to train them but don't worry dear they don't feel pain the way the way we do and that underlying belief that somehow uh, that animals do not have a rich emotional life that they don't experience pain quite in the same way that we do etc cetera, etc cetera. well when we start to shift that we weave in some very strong strands into that safety net that's under the horse because now we start to care more about their welfare. You know, as soon as you start to say that mm -hmm. they, they have a rich emotional life, that they experience pain, they experience discomfort, their social needs are important, et cetera, et cetera, then animal welfare becomes uh, one of the important outcomes that sits within our values really important mm -hmm. which weaves us right back sort of to the to the beginning where you were saying you know what's control you know we we uh the ability to to obtain desired outcomes and now one of the desired outcomes that we're looking for is uh good wealth is good welfare for the horses very sneaky mm -hmm. How we got we got we got around a loop. <laughs> Has a way wow. of doing that. We made it all the way around a loop through our convoluted rabbit holes. Very fun. <laughs> yeah. Which is probably a good point at which to say there's a bit we've chewed on a lot of good things and there's still a great deal more to chew on, but this is probably a good place to stop because if we keep going We'll head off around, it's a movement cycle, we'll head off around the loop again. <laughs> and who knows how long it will take us to get back to the yes. start of the movement cycle. Yeah. So thank you immensely. Yes, yes. This is the yeah. grant. Yeah. yeah, thank you, thank Sarah. You both. Thank you. Thank you both. It's yeah. a great treat. Was a and hopefully some, some people listening have some ideas and they're out there experimenting and innovating and, you know, They'll come on here someday to yes. talk about it, and we'll all get to benefit from what they're doing. Yes, they'll say, you know, that conversation that you had with Sarah Mimi, that set me off down this rabbit hole. And, and so here I am. That's how the streams ex expand into the river, which is really fun. Thank you, Sarah, for making so much time for us. 
This has been just a fabulous three-parter of a conversation. We've gone down so many rabbit holes, which as you know, is something that I love doing. And as many rabbit holes as we went down, I know there are still a lot more to be explored. So I'm really looking forward to our next all afternoon conversation. And for those of you who are listening, by way of a tease, Sarah sent me the following note relating to the first two parts of our conversation. She wrote, I wanted to send a clarification to the conversation about control. I realized in listening to it that a very important aspect of that definition, the ability to obtain desired outcomes and avoid undesired outcomes, is implied in what I said but could easily be missed. A critical part of ability is that control requires being able to behave to obtain desired outcomes. Or in other words, to obtain desired outcomes that are contingent on your behavior. It's not enough for desirable outcomes to just happen, to just experience them. That doesn't increase feelings of control. To feel control, you have to behave to obtain desired outcomes or behave to avoid desired outcomes. That is what it means to have control. That piece goes a long way towards explaining some very vexing behavior puzzles, including how is it possible for people born into the lap of luxury to be miserable? We know this happens. It is even a fairly predictable outcome for people in these circumstances. For someone on the outside looking in who is scraping by for basic necessities, it seems impossible. But from the lens of control, it is absolutely possible for someone to have more than they could ever want, and then some, and yet lack any sense of control, and relatedly purpose, over their life. Desirable outcomes happen, but they aren't contingent on their behavior. Control requires agency. So desirable outcomes with no agency equals very low control. Too much of that is a recipe for misery. Also, anti-freeloading. Why would a squirrel open a box to get a cookie when it could get the same cookie, i.e. the same reward value, for free without expending extra energy bothering with the box? This doesn't make any sense if the only value to be obtained is represented by the cookie, the outcome. But this perspective overlooks the value offered by the goal pursuit process, namely behaving to obtain a desired outcome, the value of feeling control. So from this lens, the value of the cookie is less than the value of the cookie plus the value of control obtained by using one's behavior to obtain a cookie. So this turned into a tease for our next conversation. But in the meantime, if there's a spot for it in the podcast, a brief clarification on the definition of control the ability to obtain desired outcomes, really should be clarified to the ability to use one's behavior to obtain desired outcomes, or the ability to obtain contingent outcomes would be useful. So that's from Sarah. And I have to say this is indeed a great tease for our next conversation. It's going to be on intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, which is just a really, really fun topic to explore. 
And it just goes to show that there is always more to be dug into. And speaking of more to dig into, that's also what makes science camp so much fun. I knew I could work it in somewhere. Someone in science camp will drop a pearl like this, what Sarah's just sent us. They'll drop this pearl into our midst and we'll be off into a discussion that helps us all to see connections that maybe none of us have made before. Science Camp is just a fabulous event. We've been holding it for the last couple of years, and in 2022, we're having two Science Camps. Our presenters are Dr. Jesus Rosales-Ruiz, Mary Hunter, Dr. Michaela Hempen, Anita Schnee, and myself. The first event is February 17 through 20. This is a virtual event, so even though we call it Science Camp, we're not actually camping out in the middle of winter. That is, you, unless you want to, but that's not what most of us will be doing. The February event is for first-time science campers. So if you haven't yet attended one of the Science Camp events, this is a great opportunity to get caught up. We're going to be presenting the main topics that we've been covering in the previous years. And then in the second science camp, which is over Labor Day weekend, we're going to be bringing in new material that's going to really stretch us even further as we explore what it means to be constructional trainers. So for more on science camp, please visit my website, theclickercenter.com. And just a quick note for all of you who are looking ahead into 2022 and trying to plan out your year. I am in the process of preparing next year's clinics. At the moment, I'm still going to be teaching virtually. I haven't yet started to travel to in-person clinics. That's in part because I've really been enjoying the virtual clinics just enormously. The virtual clinics remove the constraints of geography. I've been meeting, teaching with people who I would never have normally been able to connect with, just because the distances to travel would be too great. So we've been removing the constraints of geography, and in 2022, I'm going to be experimenting with yet another new format because I'd like to remove even more the constraints of time. I haven't quite got all the details on that worked out, but in the coming weeks, I'll have more to say about next year's clinics. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, happy holidays, everyone, and have fun with your horses.